So you've noticed that you no longer feel anything for your husband. And you're scared it's always going to be this way. I'm sorry. Because that's not the way it was supposed to be. At the beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 2, God describes the creation of Adam and Eve, the first marriage. God made Adam first from the, from the dust of the ground and he formed him up, he breathed into him, he became, he became a living being and then God gave him a task. He named all the animals and Adam noticed that there was no one there for him, no companion that was just like him. And then he took a nap and during the nap, God, God opened up his side and took a piece of his rib and he made a woman from the rib. And then when Adam woke up, in front of him was this beautiful woman. And in Genesis chapter 2, Adam erupts into the world's first love sonnet, looking at this beautiful woman and basically saying, I can't even be myself without you. Which made her feel great. It would have swept her off her feet. And maybe you've had that similar experience of being swept off your feet by somebody. Maybe that's why you married him. Because at one point he did the same for you. But in the, in the very next chapter, in Genesis chapter 3, God warned Eve it was going to be a lot harder to find joy in her relationship with her husband. When among the consequences that he gave to Eve very specifically after Adam and Eve both sinned, one of the consequences was, Eve, your desire is now going to be for your husband. Which doesn't sound bad. That's kind of what you're looking for. <laughs> you're hoping that you will desire your husband again. But that, God didn't mean it that way. What he basically meant, without going into too much detail, was that this relationship that has the potential to fill you with so much joy is very easily going to leave you feel like there's no joy there anymore. And you're going to have to watch out for that because it's going to be a reality. And so there's some bad news about where to go from here and some good news. I'll get to the bad news first. The bad news is there's only so much you can do. There's a passage in Romans chapter 12 that it doesn't exactly talk about marriage, but it talks about two individuals who are having a hard time being full of joy when they're with one another. And it says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And that first phrase is really, really key. As far as it depends on you. Basically, there's only so much you can do. You can't control the other person. You can't fix them. You can't change them. There's only so much you can do, and that's, that's challenging that you don't have complete control over where this is going to go. But the good news is, and this is going to sound really ironic, so stick with me, that if you no longer desire anything for your husband, you're actually not all that far away from doing the very best thing you can to fix the whole thing. Well, I'll use a quote from, from somebody who, uh, who was in the church a couple hundred years ago. Uh, Martin Luther, the um, the great uh, great church leader, leader of the the Christian Reformation back in the 1500s, and and he had a lot of quotes on marriage. And one of his quotes was was this. He says, you know, the the first love between between a man and a woman, the first love is drunken. He says, when the intoxication wears off, then comes the real marriage. Love. You know what he means by that. It, at first, when you meet someone, they often sweep you off your feet and, and you're emotionally on such the, this, this incredible high because you feel so loved, you feel so appreciated. You're on cloud nine. But then, 
once the intoxication wears off, when you're not flying so high anymore on those emotions, then comes the real marriage, which is love. And why is, and what does he mean by that? What he means is that, well, he's talking about love in the way the Bible talks about love. And when the Bible talks about love between husbands and wives and between individuals, it's usually not talking about an emotion at all, but rather a decision. Something that you decide to do whether or not you feel like it. That's, that's what love is in 1 Corinthians 13, one of the most famous love sections in the entire Bible. Starting at verse 4 in that chapter, it says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And the key words in there are is and always. That love is patient. Love is kind. Not love feels patient or love feels kind, but it just always is, whether or not you feel like it. Love always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, always keeps going. Not just when it feels like it, but all the time. It's a decision that you make to be loving even when you don't feel the desire. That's very loving. And is that hard? Ask Jesus. Ask Jesus how hard it is to be patient and to be kind when no one is being kind with you, when nobody is doing anything at all except giving you reason to walk away from them, when there wasn't a single person who was desiring to be closer to him, but instead most of them were just desiring to kill him. And yet he was patient as he patiently hung on a cross and he was kind and forgiving them. And he remained hopeful that one day they would see his great love for them. And he persevered and he kept going until he had given the world all the love that he knew how to give, even though it didn't feel good at all to give it. And what precious gift did he give us in doing so? The gift of a love that will always be there for us, whether or not we deserve it. On our good days, we get to look at Jesus and see, Jesus loves me. But even on our worst days, when we don't give him much reason to desire a relationship with us, we still get to look at the cross and see, he loves me. And that's a powerful gift. And it's a powerful gift that comes with a powerful promise. And that section of 1 Corinthians 13, where it defines what love is, always, patient, kind, etc., 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 it ends with a promise from God when it says, it always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And then the next three words after that, I didn't read, but do you know what they are? Love never fails. And that's a promise from God. A God who knows how hard it is to put love into practice. That when you do, when you put the same type of love into practice, God will not fail your marriage. God will not fail to be there for you. 
You don't feel anything for your husband. But boy, you're really good roommates. <laughs> if that's the case, then tell me if this sounds familiar. Morning routine, get out of bed. You happen to run into your husband. Conversation goes something like this. What are you doing today? What do the kids need to be? Where do they need to be? What are they doing? And oh, we need something from the store. Go on your way. Go through the day, come home at night. Conversation is, what'd you do today? Do the kids need to be anywhere tomorrow? Oh, and I'll need to go to the store. <laughs> or maybe both morning and evening, the conversation is nothing. You just, just kind of each do your own thing and exist in the same space, live in the same house, parent the same kids. Get out of each other's way as much as possible. But that's about it. They're good roommates. You exist really well. And why is that frustrating? I want you to take a moment and come up with a list of all the different things that you are able to do with your husband that you are not able to do with even your closest friend. It's probably a short list. You can have deep conversations with your closest friend. You can take vacations with your closest friend. You can go have coffee with your closest friend. You can even give a hug to your closest friend. But I'm guessing if you were to come up with a list of things that you can do only with your husband, what ends up on that list would probably be related to your physical intimacy the sexual relationship between you and your husband. There's something special there that God designed. And I think it's why the Apostle Paul wrote what he did in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when he says this, he said, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. And so he's not commanding you to have sex with your husband. But he's really strongly urging you to on a pretty regular basis because there are very few things that you can do with your husband that make you feel like husband and wife. Very few things you can do that make you feel like that better than sexual intimacy can. And why is that? I want you to think of something else. I want you to come up with an explanation for why God created sex the way he did. Like, why did God create sex? And your first answer might be, well, to have kids. You can't have kids without having sex with someone. That's very true. <laughs> but really, God could have invented any way to have children. He could, have, uh, he could have said, if you as a husband and wife would like to become pregnant, then on the 10th day of the third month, go outside, look up at the moon, and have your husband tickle your armpit. And you will become pregnant. <laughs> Could have said, if you and your spouse would like to become pregnant, then on the 23rd day of the seventh month, you must both sit down facing one another and have a staring contest. 
and when somebody finally blinks, you're pregnant. Something like that. But, uh, <laughs> but he, he didn't do any of those things. Instead, he created this incredibly intimate act that literally brings you closer to any human being than you will ever be to any other. Like so close that the Bible describes that act as you are being one flesh. That if somebody were looking at the two of you from the outside looking in, it would look like you were just one, one piece of human flesh just united. But of course, that's, that's the special thing about it. Nobody else gets to see it. Nobody else gets to look in on it. It's just the two of you. Completely vulnerable with another human being, with one another. Somebody loving you in a way that nobody else ever gets in on. And there's something very special about that. God created a way for husbands and wives to show each other that they love them in a way that they will never love anybody else. And it's a way that God created to create intimacy, to create desire, to create longing to create emotional connection between a husband and a wife. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, don't withhold that from one another for very long because otherwise Satan's going to come in and he's going to tempt one or both of you to start trying to fulfill that desire in some other way. In some other way other than in the spouse that you promised yourself to. And so he urges you to act like a husband and a wife because there are very few things that the two of you can do together where you really feel like you are somebody's wife and where he is somebody's husband. Talking about physical intimacy, there might be a very legitimate question that's popping in your mind and maybe screaming in your mind. What if you just don't desire your husband physically? And that's, and that's, a, hard, that's a hard situation to be in. I'll say one principle, one biological principle of the average men and women and then just some practical advice about how to deal with that. Just related to physical and emotional intimacy. As a woman, it's likely that in order to feel the desire to be physically intimate with your husband, you first need to be felt, you, you first need the emotional intimacy to be built up. You need him to show you that he's thinking about you, that he cares about you, that you are on his mind, that he has your back, that he desires you in all these different ways before he expects to receive anything, you want that emotional intimacy built up in order, you know, and then once it is, then you will often feel the desire to be physically intimate with him. That makes sense to you. For men, it's the opposite. Is that men, in order to feel emotionally intimate with somebody, they first often need to feel physically intimate with them is that they look for the physical intimacy in order to feel emotionally intimate. And so God created this, it seems to be, far too complex way of creating intimacy between a man and a woman, where the one thing that you are looking for is something that he's not good naturally at giving. And the one thing that he's looking for is something that you often don't feel like giving until he's done, until he's done his part. And that can create a lot of conflict. It's important to recognize that difference in how the... Uh, the average male and average female brains are wired just to know that that's how he's looking at things. And I would encourage you, if there's some disconnect there, 
especially if there's a major disconnect. Number one, to talk to him about it. Be honest with him, be loving. Uh, understanding where his mind is very naturally coming from. Just tell him how, where you are honestly coming from because he doesn't see life the same way that you do and he needs to understand where you're coming from. So communicate with him as lovingly as you can and if you have a hard time doing that because communication between the two of you has become difficult, uh, then find a professional who can help, a pro professional counselor or a minister or somebody that you trust who, can, who understands the situation and understands your diff different needs. And then even if you get to that point, and I hope you do, just be patient because there is so much to learn. There's so much to learn about one another, so much he needs to learn about you, so much, so much you'll need to discover about him. Um, and just understand that it's, that it's a journey. And it's a journey on which you are never alone, that God understands how hard these things are. He's the one who wired you the beautiful way that you are. And he has every intention of being there for you in all things, even this. And this is just scratching the surface on this topic. I know that. And there's a whole lot more to discuss about your needs and his needs and, and your expectations and, and his expectations. One of the questions that I often get is, um, well, Pastor, how, how often is a husband and wife supposed to have sex? Like, what's the number? Um, the Bible doesn't give us a number, <laughs> so, so I hesitate to give you a number, but, but based on, um, just based on working with couples, based on sociological research, based on husband and wife experience, the general number that's given is that if you're a younger couple, about three times per week is a good goal. And if you have some years of experience in, uh, in your marriage, then, then aim for two times a week. General numbers, not anything solid about them or definitive about them, but just, just good goals as a way for you to show your husband that you desire him in a way that's meaningful for him. Men and women think differently on this, and I'll give you some insights into the male brain. If you don't know this already, that men will often look at the sexual relationship with his wife as the way of determining how healthy the relationship is. And so if sexual activity is happening, they feel like the relationship is healthy and happy. And if it's not, then they'll, they'll feel the opposite. And so another way to look at this is very simply, when you show that you desire your husband, when you show that act of willing love, unique love, you are more likely to have a husband who will desire you and make you feel desired, too. There's another quote by Martin Luther. Uh, goes back, again, many hundreds of years, but he was talking to husbands, but it applies to wives, too, where he says, the Christian is supposed to love his neighbor, and since his wife is his nearest neighbor, she should be his deepest love. I hope that your husband does that for you. But even if he doesn't, don't let that stop you from doing that for him. A Christian is supposed to love her neighbor. And since her husband is her nearest neighbor, he should be her deepest love. Put that love into practice and see in this way also that God will not fail to love you. 
Maybe you don't feel anything for your husband because he just does not seem to be interested at all in you. And that goes back a long ways, all the way back to the very beginning of men and women. Remember in Genesis 2, when God made Adam and then God made Eve and Adam woke up from his nap and he saw the woman and he said, oh, yes. It's like, you are, you are part of me and I can't even be me without you. And she felt so good, so desired. This man was locked in on her. She felt loved. But then go just one chapter later in the Bible and what do we hear coming out of the mouths or the husband's mouth? Uh, God, it was this woman you put here with me. She's the one who messed it all up. It's her fault. I didn't even ask for her. I didn't even want her to be here. I don't even know why you did this to me. But I really didn't want anything to do with her in the first place. And now look what happened because she's here. And how do you think Eve felt hearing that? To go from the high of being perfectly desired to the low of hearing I don't ever want anything to do with you ever again. I want to look at this from maybe a slightly interesting perspective. If you think of that conversation in the Garden of Eden, I want you to consider what Adam was doing at the same time that he was talking badly about his wife. He was at the same time covering himself up. He was covering up his naked body. He was ashamed to be in front of her. He was, he was covering himself up. And why do you think he was covering himself up? Because he at the same time believed that he was the kind of person that she should want nothing to do with. He was feeling guilt. And that's a painful feeling. A painful feeling that can often lead a person to intentionally keep distance from somebody else because they are so afraid that another person will look at them and come to the same conclusion. And if you think it's even possible that that might be the case in your relationship with your husband, that one of the reasons he is showing no interest in you is because he knows he has given you plenty of legitimate reasons not to be interested in him. I'm going to give you a solution that might begin to bridge the gap. And the solution is this. Be curious about him. Be curious about him. About anything at all related to his life. Ask him questions about, about his day, but go deeper if you can. Ask him questions about his hopes and his dreams. Spend time listening to him. And, but just be incredibly curious about him. One of the reasons why is because um, he's a different man than he is when you married him. Just like you are a different woman than you were when he married you. Uh, life goes on, we grow, we change, things happen to us, and we are, we are always becoming somebody that we weren't before with every life experience and with every year that goes by. And so there's always something to learn about. There's always something to learn about him. But also because it is an incredibly powerful gift that we can give to one another in being curious about one another because it shows something. It shows that you're interested in them, that you want to be close to them, that you don't want to keep your distance. We see this in the book of Philippians as the Apostle Paul is writing to his friends in the city of Philippi towards the end of the book. 
he, um, he's expressing his deep love for his friends and he points, he's point this out, points this out about them in Philippians chapter 4. He says, It was good of you to share in my troubles. He was incredibly appreciative to them because they took the time to share in his troubles, to figure out what they were, to listen to his needs, and then to rack their brains, maybe together with Paul even on some cases, of, of how they could address these things together so that they, in whatever way, they made it clear to Paul that they wanted to go through life with him. All of, everything that his life was, everything that he was, they wanted to share in it as if they were part of it. And they didn't want to stop being part of it. And so Paul expresses that, that great, that it's like, you are curious about me. And it made such a powerful impact on him. And again, if you go back to the Garden of Eden, to Genesis chapter 3, God gives us some incredible insight into one particular area of life that it would be good to express some curiosity in about him. One thing that matters to him quite a bit has a significant impact on how he views himself. We see this in the different consequences that God gave to Eve and Adam in the Garden of Eden. That when God came to Eve, he said, there's going to be pain in childbirth and your desire is going to be for your husband. And he was warning her that because relationships in your life have the power to make you feel so good, you're just going to have to watch out now because those same relationships, if they're not there in your life, they're going to have the ability to crush your heart if they're missing or if they're broken. Relationships mattered a great deal and made a big impact on how Eve viewed herself. But for Adam, it was different. The consequences that God gave to Adam didn't focus at all on relationships. Not that they weren't going to be important to him, but God wired men to, to view themselves through the lens, not of relationships primarily, but primarily their work. Which is why he said to Adam, as you work the ground, as you toil, it's going to be a lot of pain for you. There's going to be thorns and thistles. And this one area of life that so easily made you feel so good because you felt so useful, well, it's going to be a lot harder to find that joy in this world where work is going to be much, much more difficult. And it's not accidental that God gave these consequences to both Eve and Adam while the other one was there listening. Uh, God certainly wanted Adam to hear how important relationships were going to be to Eve so that he could take that knowledge and, and do something good with it. And if that hasn't been the case for you, I'm sorry. It's not the way God meant it to be. And I hope and pray that your husband begins to see that in some kind of way. But it also wasn't accidental that Eve was there listening to God's consequences for Adam of how important work was to him, that he was going to view almost everything in life through the lens of how valuable his work was. And so if there's one area of life that I would encourage you to be curious about in particular, it would be be curious about his work. Ask him about his day. Ask him about the details. Ask him what felt good. Ask him what was difficult. Ask him how you can support him. And show that you care about his work and you can do that in a number, number of ways. One is by giving him praise about his work as often as you can. You don't have to make anything up, like don't invent anything. But if you see him do something well, tell him that he did that really, really well. That's different than saying thanks to him, by the way. That can also be a very powerful thing, but it doesn't accomplish the same thing as telling him that he did something really, really well. That fills him up in great ways. And the person who says that to him is going to be somebody who rises a little bit in, uh, in, his, in his mind. And if you're the one who says that to him on a regular basis, that you praise him, you give him praise for work, for his work that he does, you're, just, you're going to continue to rise in his mind and in his heart. Also, because he cares so much about work, um, 
give him time to take a break from it because it's always on his mind. And there's so, there's so much to do. And guys typically are very good about beating themselves up for work that is undone or commitments that they haven't been able to fulfill or tasks that haven't been completed yet. Work is always on a guy's mind typically and they're always thinking about it. And so as much as possible, you can show that you're curious about his work and that you care about it by every once in a while giving him a break from doing something. That means a lot to him, and again, that'll elevate your status in his mind when he knows that you, when he knows that you're doing those things. And so, give him, give him praise, give him time away, give him, you know, give attention, give attention to his work. Um, and if you give these things, another very legitimate question might be popping into your mind: that if you give and you give and you give and you give and you give to him. What if he never gives back to you? Maybe that's where you are. And I think the Apostle Paul anticipated that too as he was writing to his friends in Philippi. As he noted how much they had given him. They gave and they gave and they gave. He knows that giving is a very, very hard thing. Which is why he reminded them at the very end of that section, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. I'd say it another way. We'll never be able to outgive God. God knows how hard it is to sacrifice. He knows how hard it is to give and give and give until he had nothing left to give and he had given his entire life. But in doing that, he showed you that he will always give everything he has to take care of you so that you can know that whenever you give and give and give for others, God's love working through you is not going to fail to give you everything you need. Maybe you don't feel anything for your husband because you can't forgive him. And if we're talking about forgiveness, that means that he's inflicted a lot of pain on you in some way. Maybe he's just lazy. Maybe he doesn't love you anything close to how Christ loves the church. Maybe he's not there for you. Maybe he's not responsive. Maybe there was an affair. Maybe there's pornography. If we're talking about forgiveness at all, it means that you've been hurt. And that wasn't the way it was supposed to be. There's a passage at the end of Genesis chapter 2 that's, that's really interesting. I sometimes ask people why they think it was in the Bible. Like why God wanted this verse included in the Bible. After it talks about the creation of Adam and Eve, it says, The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And I ask, Why do you think God wanted that in the Bible? He wanted us to know that they were both naked and they felt no shame. Seems like a strange addition, but there's something really beautiful behind it. As you picture Adam and Eve in the perfect world, both completely exposed in every way, neither of them felt embarrassed because neither of them had any reason to feel embarrassed. In fact, as Eve looked at Adam, by the way that Adam was looking at her, she could just tell that he loves me just the way I am. I don't need to hide anything. I don't need to pretend. I don't need to lie. I just, I get to be who I am and, and I'm perfectly, completely loved. And Adam felt the same thing. As he looked at Eve, looked at, looked at him, he knew by the way she was looking at him, she loves me just the way I am. 
She's not trying to change me. She's not trying to fix me. She's just, she just loves me. Of course, easy for them <laughs> because at that point, neither of them had messed up. They hadn't inflicted any pain on the other person. That will come in the next chapter. Easy for them because they are, there was nothing to forget. But in a marriage, there often is. There's a lot of pain that you would love to forget. But the truth is, you don't need to forget in order to forgive and to move on and to start growing your intimacy again and your relationship with them. One of my favorite accounts in the Bible that shows that is the account of Joseph and his brothers. I'll give you the, the very quick backstory if you're not familiar with Joseph, but when Joseph was a teenager, his brothers sold him. First, they wanted to kill him, but then they decided to do their brother a favor, be nice to him, and just sell him, <laughs> which, which wasn't very nice, but they, they really despised him. Their relationship was really bad, and they inflicted a lot of pain, not just on Joseph and sending him away, but, but on Joseph's father, broke his heart, and on Joseph's mother, broke her heart too. And then Joseph went through this up and down, mostly down journey of a lot of different people forgetting about him and never again, re never returning to his home ever again. A lot of decades went by and, and eventually, to make a long story short, uh, we see that God remembered Joseph and, and he took care of him and he eventually got him into a very powerful position where he was in charge of basically all the food that was left in the world during a worldwide famine as he was in a position of power in the country of Egypt. And so there was a seven-year famine that was going on. He was in charge of distributing it to anybody who came looking for food. And since the whole world was out of food, except for the stockpile in Egypt that Joseph was overseeing, eventually, who do you think came walking in to ask Joseph for food? The brothers who sold him so many years earlier. And do you think Joseph forgot what his brothers had done to him? No. Not at all. He didn't forget. He eventually revealed himself to his brothers because they didn't recognize him at first. They never expected to see him again. He said, I'm your brother. And they were scared, but he said, don't worry about it. Move your families to Egypt. Bring dad, you know, bring dad too. And then they all ended up living in Egypt. But then a number of more, a couple more years went by and their dad finally died. And then the brothers got very, very scared. And they, they said, I bet you Joseph is going to hold a grudge against us. And now that dad's gone, you know, maybe he, he stopped from inflicting any kind of pain on us or taking it out on us for the sake of dad. He didn't want his heart to break all over again. But now that dad's gone, um, they were really scared of what Joseph was going to do. And so they made up this story about dad saying on his deathbed that Joseph should forgive them. And, and when, they, when they told this fictional story to Joseph, Joseph just wept. He just wept and he said, he said that he forgave them. But he didn't forget. In fact, he reminded his brothers. He said to his brothers, he said, I, did, I didn't forget, you intended to harm me. And he knew all the ways that they did. He remembered, he couldn't, that changed his life. There's no way he couldn't forget that pain. You intended to harm me, he said. But, he went on, God intended it for good. In other words, God did something good with the painful thing that you did. It's like, you intended to harm me, they said, and they did. They intended, they intended to, that they would never see their brother again, but, but God took it and intended that people from all over the world would come and search Joseph out and beg him for food during a famine. They intended that they would 
really, in a sense, end his brother's life. But God took this one life that had been hurt so much and saved millions through it. They intended evil, but God did something good. And that's what Joseph chose to remember. He didn't forget the awful thing that was done to him. He didn't forget the pain. He didn't forget all the challenges that came along the way. He just chose to remember that our God is always bigger than it. And that's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not pretending like the other person never hurt you. Forgiveness is not saying that what they did was okay. That's not what forgiveness is. It's just remembering that whatever they did, our God is going to overcome it. Our God is going to overcome it. And he knows the types of pain he promises to overcome and how difficult they are for us to go through and to suffer through. Because he did too. Jesus didn't forget our sin. The sins against him, the sins of the people who pounded the nails into him as he was hanging on the cross. He didn't forget the people who spit in his face along the way. He didn't forget the people who ripped his skin open with a whip. He didn't forget it at all. He simply chose to put all that pain into the hands of our Father in heaven who wanted to give every single person on earth, however much they've been hurt, however much they have hurt somebody else, a reason to move forward again with hope. And that's exactly what God gave Adam and Eve in the garden when they were hiding themselves from one another because they knew they had reasons to be ashamed. God promised them right in that moment that God was going to send from the woman's own body the seed of the woman that would come and crush the head of the serpent that tempted them to cross a line that they knew they shouldn't. And how, how often did they need to hold on to that hope that God can overcome anything? The Bible tells us Adam lived over 900 years and he never saw the seed of the woman that eventually saved everyone, not with his own eyes. How often as he was suffering the pain of the world and being reminded of the pain that he brought into the world because of his sin, did he need to go back to that promise of what God is able to do to overcome this world's deepest pain. You've been hurt. You've been hurt. It's a hurt that you probably will never forget. But God really can save you from it. But God will not let it get the best of you. But God wants to take it in his hands so that you no longer have to carry it in yours. If you no longer feel anything for your husband, one of the reasons that can be such a painful feeling is if, is if you really can't see it being any different. And what I, what I mean by that is that you just, you don't have the ability to picture anything different. One of the questions I often ask young couples who are about to get married as I sit down with them for pre-marriage classes is, how was love shown by your parents in your home? And the reason I ask them that question is because how love was or wasn't modeled for us as we grew up has a very powerful impact on us. For example, if, um, if parents 
always showed up at their kids' events. If that's how they showed love in their house, then those children are more likely to do the same thing with their children because, because that's what was modeled for them. If, uh, if parents never said, I love you to their children, then when those children grow up, even if they believe it's a good thing to say, I love you to their children, to actually say the words, they're more likely to have a hard time actually saying those words because of what was or wasn't modeled for them. The models that are in front of us have a powerful impact on what we're able to put into practice as we continue to grow up. There's something real to that, and it is entirely possible. And I know it does happen that people get into a marriage in which, well, they don't have any good models in front of them. They either never saw a healthy marriage with their own eyes, or they never saw a marriage that knew how to recover from the difficult times. And if that's the case, it's easy to feel very defeated because you can't see a model that, well, that you can go after. Well, there's, it's good to take those things seriously, very seriously. The Bible always gives us a better model. And it doesn't say for marriage, look at your parents or look at your friends. Instead, the example that the Bible puts in front of us, the model is always God. It does that in a couple of different places. In Ephesians 5, at the very beginning of the chapter, it says, Follow God's example as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's at the beginning of chapter 5. And then in the middle of chapter 5, yeah, he takes the word sacrifice and makes practical application as to what that looks like for husbands and wives when it tells them to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. If you're sacrificing for somebody else, it means that you are putting their needs above your own, no matter how hard it is, no matter how painful that is. And God expects husbands and wives to be able to do that for one another. And if you're at a point where you don't feel anything for your husband anymore, it probably means that he hasn't been doing a good job of submitting himself to your needs, of sacrificing for you. And I hope and pray that changes. And one of the ways you can make it more likely that that change would come is by following the model that God has placed for you. After telling both husbands and wives to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, then the Bible also talks about what the particular submission looks like for husbands and also what that particular submission looks like for wives. 1 Peter chapter 3 says it this way to wives. It says, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornments such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold, jewelry, or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now, there's a whole lot that we can unpack in that section. We're not going to dig into all of it. I'll tell you one thing that that section doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you're not as important as him. It doesn't mean that your needs aren't as valuable. It doesn't mean that God sees you as less than your husband. That's not at all what the Bible ever means when it talks about the relationship between wives and husbands. But a couple of things I want to point out in that section. The part about winning him over without words. That means that you don't have to feel pressure to say the right thing. 
you don't have to come up with just the right formula to speak exactly the right words or just, you know, just say the right thing that's going to that's gonna get to him. You don't need to put that pressure on yourself. There's also the section about your beauty doesn't need to come from outward adornment. In other words, you don't need to make yourself something that you're not. And he goes on to really emphasize the, um, the, the positive side of that in the next line when he says, your beauty is yourself. The beauty of your inner self, which is of great worth to God. In other words, God just expects you to be you. To be you. In order to know that when you put Christ-like love, when you model God's love for us and how you treat your husband, that God will continue to care for you. Because what does God do for the things that are worth much to him? He sacrifices for them. He submits himself to serve them. He bleeds for them. He takes the nails for them. He dies for them. And he lives for you. To love you. To make sure that there's nothing on this painful planet that will ever in the end get the best of you. Marriage is the only illustration that God uses in the Bible as the illustration of God's love for us, the only picture. And that's, and that's remarkable that he does it because he knows what he's dealing with. He's dealing with a, a perfect God with perfect love, applying that love to a very imperfect church. And yet, what's the promise? That even working with an imperfect church, God's perfect love will always overcome. You will always be cared for. You will always be taken care of. And you will be victorious in the end. Hey everyone, Pastor Mike here with Time of Grace. Thank you so much for checking out our podcast. And we'd love for this podcast to be a blessing to you in the days to come. So if you could share this podcast, subscribe so that every episode ends up in your feed, or just leave us a review, we would love more and more people to hear this message so that their lives can be surrounded and blessed by the grace of God. Thanks again and have a wonderful day.